All right, good morning, friends. Let's uh, flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll keep going through the letter from our brother Paul to the church there in Corinth. Just by review uh, from last week, remember, 2 Corinthians is actually probably the, well, it's at least the third letter, if not the fourth letter uh, that Paul wrote. We know that uh, 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, when I wrote you before, so even though in our Bibles, 1 Corinthians is labeled first, it's not the first letter, we just don't have it. And then he references in chapter 2 here uh, of 2 Corinthians, a visit that, that doesn't seem to fit in with what we know, and also a letter that brought a lot of, uh, that he wrote with anguish. So uh, evidently, we're actually, our 2 Corinthians is probably more like, Third or fourth Corinthians. Does that make sense? Not that we need to panic about that. If God wanted us to have those letters, we'd have them. So evidently, we don't need them. Uh, and in this particular letter that we've uh, looked at yesterday, or not yesterday, uh, Sunday, every day is Sunday, right? That we looked at Sunday is, is that Paul here exhibits a, a personal character, something that is admirable and worth emulating, where he's investing in the Corinthians, Right? And we talked about the fact that uh, they've have, there's a, at least a section of people that are regularly attending there at Corinth that reject him, reject his teaching. They mock him. They say, uh, he's going to talk about here in a couple chapters, that they say about him that he's, he writes really strong letters, but when he shows up, he's a really weak person, in, uh, uh, well, weak in person. Uh, the, he, we know that he had a tender heart for them, and including what we'll reread today, that he, when he writes this uh, the, the letter in reference here in 2 Corinthians, he says that he wrote it with tears and with anguish. And he know, we know that, that amongst all the turmoil and the argument with his doctrine, the argument with who he is as a person, the personal attacks, all those, he's still willing to invest in them, right? And, and this is real kingdom work. You know, Jesus put it this way. He, he said, you know, if, if tax collectors invite tax collectors over for dinner, you know, what... There's not a reward in that. Or I should say, if a Pharisee invites a Pharisee over for dinner, he says there's not a reward in that because you're just inviting people that can, that can do you the same favor. He says, instead, we should invite people over that can't do us the same favor. You know, the idea is that Jesus is communicating and that we're looking at here is that we're called as kingdom people to invest in people that, that may not always like our investment. Not to be jerks, not to be rude or something like that but to be willing to endure hardship from someone else to bear that burden in order to win people to Christ. So as we jump into the second portion, uh, Paul's going to uh, change gears a little bit here, and he's going to talk about a man uh, that repented, and, and we'll get into what that may be, and really how the church is to treat that. Uh, because the, I think there's, there's two topics here that are very, um, or can be anyway, nebulous. One is church discipline, and the other is forgiveness and what forgiveness is and what it's not and, and how it works. So let's jump in here. We'll read the first part for context in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 1. He says, you, I'm uh, sorry. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. That's the visit. Evidently, he went to Macedonia and visited them on the way, but he did not come back. Uh, when, when, when he comes back from Macedonia, he does not visit them on the way back. Um, and so that upset them. And so he's telling them now why he did not do that. And he says, I didn't do it because that first visit was incredibly painful. So we don't know entirely what happened on the visit. We don't know why it was so painful, but it was a difficult visit. And he says, for if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you who, whom I have grieved? And this is, I think, a pretty profound look into Paul's psyche, who he is. Because he's making the point, he says, if I came back again, you know, there, there comes a time in our lives, whether it's us or someone else, and they're just not willing to listen. Right? And we do that too, so we're not trying to chuck stones at anyone. They're just not willing to listen. And to try to pound it more and more and more will not do good. It will only drive them away from us. And Paul makes this statement where he says, I wanted to visit you. The last visit was so painful, I didn't visit you on my way back from Macedonia because I didn't want to make things worse. So he wanted to give them time. He wanted to, you know, to process or whatever it might be. He, wants, he, gives, he literally gives them time to not grieve them even harder about whatever it was that he was discussing with them. 
okay? Uh, and this is important. This is important for really all of our relational aspects. We have to give each other time. We can try to push truth, and this is what it is, and you need to do this, and you need to do that, and there just comes a time where you can't. And that's okay, because that's between them and Jesus. We just want to be led of the Spirit when we can contribute. And so Paul says, it was not of the Spirit for me to come visit you again about this, this particular topic, whatever that topic might be. And he makes the point, he says, if I grieved you, then who would give me joy? His, his, his desire and his expectation from his kingdom relationships was that joy would be received from each one. And he, and he, and he records that, right? Because he says in, in uh, chapter 24, speaking of right before he talks about the visit, he says, we don't lord over your faith. So part of the reason for skipping the visit was, I'm not here to lord over your faith. I'm not here to make you do anything, Paul says, which is a really important facet for church relationships, marital relationships, every friendship that we have, we're not here to make someone else do anything, right? Where he says, we don't lord over people's faith. What we do is we're helpers of people's joy. And I tell you, if you can adopt that, if you can absorb that, he doesn't say we don't talk about truth. He doesn't say we just say whatever's good is good and, and you know, carpe diem and, you know, do as thou wilt is the whole of the law to borrow from Alistair Crowley. He's not saying any of that. He's just saying that my job is not to make you to be a lord over what your faith says you should do. He says, my job is to, to give you joy. And he says, if I were to come in that point again into your lives, it would have grieved you and that would have grieved me. So I didn't come. But he's, now he's going to go on and talk about the letter. He's going to say, I wrote as I did, in verse 3, I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made, make me rejoice. He says, I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of a great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So evidently this letter, which, which I, in my opinion, you can throw it right in the trash, that, that occurs, you have a letter that he references in 1 Corinthians. He says, I wrote you before. Then you have 1 Corinthians. And then I would say, and not, it's not my idea, this is scholarship, and you can absolutely reject it because it's extra biblical, is there's a third letter. So he skips the visit, and he said writes a, a, a third letter, which we don't have, which is this, this letter that he's referring to that he says, I wrote to you, and, and he goes, the reason I wrote to you is, is not to grieve you. He says, because I wanted you to know that I love you. And he says, I have confidence that whatever he's communicating in that letter, and it could be 1 Corinthians, it could be, whatever he's communicating, he says, I have confidence that my joy, what I'm communicating, what I'm trying to tell you, that you'll accept and you'll have that same joy. So he's trying to encourage them. And remember, 1 Corinthians is about repentance, right? It's about obedience, about how to orderly meet together as God's people, things that we don't do, that essentially that we, everything we do, whether it's spiritual giftings, financial stuff, um, provision, fellowship, right, relationships, everything that we're doing, we're doing from a place of, of agape love, that we're looking to uh, interact with every person at every time with the, with the attitude and the ideology, I'm interacting right now because I want the absolute best for this person. And if I have an interaction where I'm looking at another human being and that is not my motivation, I need to take a moment and I need to check my heart. And I say, you know what, Lord, this isn't of you. It's not of you. You're not willing that any should perish. There has never been a person where God thought to himself, I hope this person perishes. That person has exist, never existed. Right? We know that from the New and the Old Testament. Where they say it in Ezekiel and in Timothy, where he says, the Lord does, is not willing that any should perish. So when we're sitting across from someone, and, and that's how we want to interact with them. Right? So that, that's, why, that's why rudeness goes out the window. It's why being passive-aggressive goes out the window. Oh, you did that, huh? Yeah, okay, if it works for you. Right? Out the window. That's not love. It's not going to help anybody. It's not going to motivate people. It's not going to bring them around to the, a biblical way of thinking. It's going to show condemnation and disappointment. Right? That's what sarcasm and, and passive aggression, that's what that does. We just don't know how to deal with conflict. And so we just do weird stuff, right? And we treat people poorly. And so Paul's saying, look, I wrote to you because the things that I have to communicate to you can help you with joy. He goes, but when I wrote it, this was his heart about it. It caused him anguish. 
It caused him anguish because he knew it would be difficult, this letter, it would be difficult for them, for them to process and adapt to. But it was still a good letter to write. So that's how a person can be someone who does not lord over another person's faith. You have to do this or else. But can be someone who's a helper of their joy. But even when we seek to be those that just help people's joy, we will probably at times have to say things or write things or communicate things that are going to bring pain. And, so, and, 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 and sometimes we will also experience, whether it's the anxiety or the pain or whatever it might be, how, you know, here he says that it was anguish of soul. Uh, that's like a deep, deep concern. Anguish is when you're squirming, when you're uh, uh, agonizing. That's the same word. Can't define a word with a word, but, you know, that's what he's saying, that it's in his inner soul. So he didn't visit them. Instead, he wrote them this letter. But his goal is that they would know that he loves them, right? May that be the goal of all of our communication at any time, at any place. Even if it's corrective or if it's difficult, I care for you. I care for you, and that's why I'm saying what I'm saying. And there's, there's ways that we can communicate that will, that will help that um, and not take away from that, that message. Now, where we jump into today, verse 5, he says this, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me, as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and confront him, excuse me, comfort him, so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Uh, anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So we'll stop there. So in this section, Paul brings up a person, and he says that this man, that this person, experienced some sort of corporate punishment. Now, corporate being the, the, the church, the, the body of Christ there in Corinth. But he, he, he starts it off and he says this, whatever it is this person did. So this could be, it is feasible that this is the man from 1 Corinthians, where if you recall, there was a man and he had an open sexual relationship with his stepmother. And Paul says of that relationship, I don't think open like they were doing the deed in public, more like that they were open about the fact that they had this relationship. Does that make sense? And Paul says about that, he says, this kind of fornication isn't even tolerated among pagans. So think about that for a second. He's writing to Corinth, which is famously you know, debauched, it's famously uh, over-sexualized, uh, alcohol, every, everything under the sun, right? Every Corinthian, that's how you knew they were Corinthian in Roman um, uh, theater was they were portrayed as drunk. If you were insulting someone in historically in the first century, you'd say, you're a Corinthian, which was the idea that like you, you will do anything. You are the depraved of the depraved. That was where Corinth was. So he's saying to this Corinthian church that not even the pagans of Corinth, people that reject God and are polytheists, not even those people think it's a good idea to have a sexual relationship with your stepmother, that it's just bad all around. That's the point that he's making. So it could be that that is the man who's repented. It could be something else. He doesn't say exactly what, what this person did. But what he does say is he says that they grieved. He, didn't, he says he didn't really grieve me. He says, realistically, he grieved you. He says, he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. So what he's saying is, this, what this person did, it brought grief or sadness, uh, uh, sadness kind of mixed with anxiety. It brought that to everyone, respectively, in your body. And he says, that's not being too severe. He says, I'm not exaggerating about what happened. That's what he means, like, not to be too severe. He's saying, I'm not exaggerating about that statement, that whatever this person did, it brought a grief to the whole church. So what we take from that, it was substantial, right? So if someone does something in a church or is involved in something and they're part of a, a localized body of Christ, right, a group of people that are coming to meet with Jesus, and they do something that is so profound that it brings grief on everyone with, within reason, right, it bring, on everyone in that body, it's, it's substantial, 
right? That isn't like someone's parking spot got stolen and, you know, two people had an unfortunate argument that we all saw out in the parking lot or something like that. You know, that's, this, it's not, this is something that's going to be a lot bigger than that to affect everyone. He goes on from there and he says, the punishment, verse 6, inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. So the idea, the word punishment there, uh, most of the English translations use the word punishment. It could be translated censure or just the idea that the, the judgment that they pronounce. So this is where church discipline and, and so forth can get weird because there's not a lot in the scripture as far as like, here are all the steps you ever take to handle every situation. There's not like, you know, like a glossary in the back where you're like, hmm, sex with stepmother, what do we do? Like that doesn't exist, Right? So there's like a ton of things in life that, that, that happen in church and difficulties that there's just no handbook for. There's just no, you, you do this in every situation. And so they exercise some sort of authority as a, um, as a church where they brought something to bear upon this man. Some sort of discipline, some sort of judgment, some sort of um, uh, punishment. That's what happened. So what is church discipline, especially when we just got done talking about the fact where Paul says we don't lord over people's faith. In fact, we're here to be helpers of people's joy. So there's a list, and, and we don't, we're not going to turn there because I don't think it's exhaustive, but there's a list, for example, in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul is talking about some of the difficulties they're having, where Paul says if these things are happening in a person's life, so if a person claims to be a Christian, meaning they are out there and about saying, I'm a Christian, this is my faith, this is what I believe. But that person is involved in these things. And, and, and you know, it's easy to be like, oh, the drunkard and the, you know, whatever, the, the, the person, the fornicator. That's easy stuff. He says, and the gossip. So let's just stick there, because most of us probably aren't going to leave here and go for a hookup or something like that. But gossip... Now, that's a difficult one. So slander is when you say something that's not true publicly about someone else. Gossip is when you communicate something that is true or most likely true about someone else. And it doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be public, right? Gossip is not seeking counsel for a difficult situation. Let me just say that right now because there's some weird ideas about gossip out there that, like, if you're going to a trusted friend or mentor or somebody that you know, you're seeking advice for how to deal with a problem with someone else, that is not gossip, all right? Let's just nip that in the bud. That's called wisdom, right? That's called getting counsel. That's called getting help to handle a situation well. Really, it doesn't turn into gossip and only you know when in, in your own heart. As soon as it becomes malicious or you just get that it feels good just to talk trash about someone, that's when you know you've graduated from counsel to sin. And so Paul says, if you have a gossip in your midst, somebody who's constantly talking to other people about other people, he says, remove them from your church so you can't come here. And then he says, you don't even eat with that person. So there's a whole list of the people. There's, there's gossips, there's fornicators, there's uh, the idea of just a drunkard, someone who's just uh, you know, a lush, constantly intoxicated. There's different things that he makes a list. But he says, don't even eat with those people. So that's, that's what we would call like excommunication. And, and really, even in excommunication, that's going to be something. That's not somebody who like is a recovering alcoholic and goes out and gets drunk. And you go, well, <laughs> you're out. That's for someone who says, you know what? You know, I'm going to go do this, and you're going to like it. And I'm going to do what I want. And I'm going to show up to your church, and I'm going to say what I want. And you go, no, I'm sorry. You're not going to do that here. That's not how this is going to work. So that's, that's an idea of biblical excommunication. You're really, what you're doing is you're, you're taking someone who's in absolute rebellion. They're, in other words, they know what God wants. They're not struggling with it. They're just doing it. And Paul says, that person can't keep coming to the church because what happens is he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? So he gives a metaphor. The idea that if you're making bread and you sprinkle some leaven into that, some yeast into that bread, when you massage it, it eventually permeates the whole loaf. Now, he is not saying if you let one practicing, you know, whatever, fornicator or gossip into your church, then everybody will become a gossip. That's, that's not what he's saying. That doesn't make any sense. 
What he's saying is that there will be fruit, that there will be an outcome. If you have a gossip in your church that you just let run wild, that you don't come along and say, you can't be saying those things. You can't trash talk the people that are here. You can't trash talk them at work. You can't trash talk them to other people that are here. You have a problem and you're continuing to trash people on Facebook or wherever it is. And so you can't come here because we're not going to subject our people to this kind of abuse. We're not going to have it. And so the leadership comes there and says, this is a problem. We're going to address it. And then that person is removed if they refuse to repent. That's the idea of a biblical exercise of those things. Hopefully, you would have something ahead of that. You would come along and you'd say, hey, you know what? We're, we've getting, we're getting different reports that, you know, at the luncheon the other day, you had a problem with so-and-so, and now you have a problem with so-and-so, and now you have a problem with so-and-so, and we just saw on your, you know, we weren't looking for it, but we see on your Facebook how you hate everyone, and this is not what Jesus is about. So how can we help you to not spew that on people and cause them anger or anxiety or grief, right? The, the permeation of that sin. And then that's when if that person says, you know what, I do have a problem and I do want to work through that. Well, then you're not going to boot that person, right? You're going to walk through things with that person. You're going to love that person, support that person, help that person. It's the, it's the rebellion. It's the high-handed sin. It's the, the, uh, the, the Hebrew word is avon. That's what's used in the Old Testament, iniquity. The high-handed sin that says, no, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do. So evidently, this person was doing something, and that's what happened. So the church as a whole, literally it says the majority, it literally means as a whole, the church decided to discipline this person. To say, no, you can't keep doing that and be a part of what we're doing, right? And so Paul is writing back to them and he's saying that what you decided, the punishment or the censure that you decided, the judgment that you pronounced, that's enough. So evidently this person repented because the follow-up after this repentance is this. He says there uh, in verse 7, he says, Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So the, the, number one, I want to talk about this. And what is discipline? So we've talked about what church discipline would look like, and that would be something imposed upon a person to protect the other people of the church and to help that person to, to walk with Jesus, right? So how does discipline occur in our life? Because there's imposed discipline like this person had done to them, right? They were involved in something, and the church came along and said, no, you can't. You can't come here and do that. That's not, it's not going to fly, and it's not going to be good for the people here. But then there's also just discipline in our life, because discipline is not a bad thing, right? Uh, for example, if you have an athlete, and they decide, I want to you know, play in the, the, or not play, but you know, be in the Olympics, or I want to play in the NFL, or whatever league they want to play in, they have to have some sort of discipline. If you want to be a student, you have to have some sort of discipline. If you say, I want to get a doctorate or a master's or a bachelor's of science, or these, then you have to decide, I'm not going to do these things. Instead, I'm going to do these things, right? And there's nothing negative about that. That's just a positive thing where you say, instead of watching eight hours of television today, I will open the books that I'm supposed to learn so that I can get grades and then get this piece of paper that says I'm smart, and then get a job, or you know, however, however that might work, right? So discipline in itself is a very positive thing. But when discipline is exercised against us, in other words, we didn't ask for it, we're like, I'm not trying to be an athlete, hand me the donuts, or whatever it might be. When it's imposed upon us by our doctor, he comes along and he says, you're pre-diabetic, you know? And you're like, oh, why? And they say, oh, they, they could, you, you could, you know, control this with diet. You're like, or I could just get insulin. Let's figure this one out. So you see, when, when, when it gets proposed against us, it immediately seems bad, right? In fact, Hebrews 12, let's flip over there. Hebrews 12. Hebrews is a fascinating letter because it is written, guess to who? Any guesses? That's right, Jews, right? It is written to people that are Jewish, that got saved, right? Because the whole theme of Hebrews is just Jesus is better. He says, the author of Hebrews makes the point that you have the Aaronic priesthood, but Jesus isn't a descendant of the Aaronic priesthood. He's not a son of Aaron. He's actually from a different tribe. And so his priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, this mysterious dude that just shows up in the desert and is like, hey, right? And then Abraham tithes to him. 
And so Jesus has a better priesthood because he has an eternal priesthood through Melchizedek. Where Jesus ministers is better. He ministers in heaven. He doesn't minister where animals are still being sacrificed. His ministry position is better. So he's, he's a higher priest. He's a, he ministers in a better place. He's got a better covenant. He doesn't minister in the old covenant. He ministers in the new covenant. Everything about in Hebrews is that Jesus is just better. Because what's happening when you read, and we'll read it here in chapter 12, think about this. You're an Israeli. You've been in Israeli for 20 years. You've done your Shabbat for 20 years. You've had your Afi Coleman for 20 years. You've had Passover, Feast of Booze, all these things that you've done for 20 years, right? And then all of a sudden, a Messiah shows up, a Messiah who both every religious leader, <clears throat> leader that you have, short of a couple, reject him, right? The Pharisees, the Sadducees in bulk, obviously there's some outliers, they all reject this Messiah, but you have some sort of interaction with him. You meet him. You talk to him. You know people that got saved. You hear John the Baptist. You hear his disciples that are going outreaching. You hear Jesus himself. And you go, no, 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 no. This dude is the Messiah. You don't have the Bible. You don't have any New Testament. All you have for the most part is the Torah. And you don't probably own a Torah. That'd be crazy expensive. You don't own the letters of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. You don't own the modern prophet life. You literally just go to synagogue every day, and you're exercising this religion that your family has had for 1,500 years. But now you decide Jesus is actually the Messiah, even though all your religious leaders are like, no. You decide to become a Christian. You decide to start meeting with them in the beginning, in Acts, in the corner of the, where the temple is, in Solomon's porch. So you're meeting outside in the Jewish temple area. And all these people just look at you like, you guys are nuts. What are you doing? Right? The Roman government doesn't like you. The Jews don't like you. Nobody likes you. And you don't have, you know, devotional fun cards to look at. You're just, you're just, all you know is that Jesus touched your life. That's literally all you know. And you know he was crucified. And somebody of yours saw him raised from the dead. That's what you know. And so what's happening is that every day that person, they're losing their families, they're losing their businesses, because they're, they're now Christians, and they're alienating their families. Or I should say their families are alienating them. But every day, you can look up and you can see the smoke coming up from the temple. Every day you can see the sacrifices. Every day you can see what your family has done for 1,500 years faithfully. And that's what you have. That's, all you have is that faith. And so what's happening is these people, they're being persecuted, and they're going back to Judaism. That's what, It's so important to understand. When you're reading Hebrews, he is writing to people that are going back to Judaism. That's the entire context of Hebrews, especially the tough passages like Hebrews 6 or Hebrews 10, people that are going back to Judaism. And so the, the author is making the case. He's saying, look, there remains no more sacrifice. If you try to go back to Judaism, there's no sacrifice there for sin. There's no justification through the blood of bulls and goats. If you try to leave Jesus and go back there, you can't find the covenant again. It's gone. It's, it's, in fact, Paul in chapter 3 says the old covenant is, is passing away. Literally, it's obsolete. You ever try to go buy a, a part for a car that's obsolete? They just say, it's not worth making that part anymore. We can't get that part. It's not made because your car is so old, it, it's just not worth it anymore. That's what he says about the old covenant. It's obsolete. He doesn't say it never had a purpose. He doesn't say it's worthless. He says it, does, it has no more place at all in the life of the believer. None. The history is cool, the customs can be cool, metaphor is cool, we all love a good metaphor, it makes us chill and all that, but the reality is the old covenant has no place in the life of the Christian anymore. And so what's happening, these people are being, they're going through hard times. So he says in chapter 12, as he's kind of starting to wrap things up after he goes on about how the faithful and how the faithful were rejected, they lived in holes, they wore loincloths and nothing else, they just had rough lives, they were impoverished. And he says this in chapter 12, verse 4. He says, In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So evidently, this is the, the, the uh, persecution for Christianity has not yet come to martyrdom, which helps us maybe date when this was written. So he says, You have not come to blood. 
He says, and you have completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord, uh, excuse me, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens every son he accepts, uh, every, excuse me, everyone he accepts as his son. Now, this is an interesting quote because these people, they're just struggling. They haven't done anything wrong, right? Like the things, the bad things that are happening in their lives, the rejection, the poverty, right? The confusion, that's not their fault. They're just people trying to figure out how does Christianity work and how do I move forward in this and how do I process the, my, my complete rejection from my family? How do I process the fact that Jews won't visit my business anymore? How do I deal with that? That's all they're doing. And so they're tempted to go back to that Jewish lifestyle. That's the whole thing. But he says, you've forgotten something. You've forgotten what, that God brings about discipline in our lives. And you're like, well, what discipline has God brought into their lives? What have they done to deserve discipline? Doesn't that seem kind of weird? It seems like they're actually like, yes, having issues with faith. But, I mean, I'm not justifying it. But can you imagine having almost zero resource? I mean, you have the Holy Spirit in you. But, I mean, how valuable is your Bible to you? Can you imagine not having that? Can you imagine that the church is still trying to figure out if Gentiles can be saved at this point? And you're a Gentile? Because that's not for like 20 years. When they finally have a convocation there at Acts in Jerusalem, in Acts at Jerusalem, where they decide, oh yeah, people who aren't Jews could be saved. <laughs> can you imagine that? And that's where your faith is at? So he says, well, you have to understand that God disciplines. You're like, why would God discipline this person? Like, what is happening? Verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. That's profound. So they're just suffering hardship, and it's not even at their own hand. They're just suffering hardship because they're trying to be faithful to the Christ, literally the Christ, the Messiah. And so this, the, the, the writer here is, you want to know how you can... You can take something that's forcing you into a place of discipline, whether it's church discipline that we've earned or whether it's discipline we've, in, we've earned at work because of poor actions, or it's just discipline of life that's just falling upon us. Every time we endure hardship, every time there's something hard in our lives, this is how we treat it. We are not saying that when hard things come into our life that God is punishing you. We are not saying that. God doesn't even say that. Jesus just, I mean, he put it out there for us. He says, yeah, hey, if I suffered, you will. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. It's just like, yeah, here you go. Paul says in Philippians 1.27, it's not only been given unto you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but to suffer also for his sake. Suffering is a given. So when we experience suffering, he says, this is how you endure it. This is how you walk through it. You accept it as something that's causing you to be disciplined. How so? What is discipline? Saying yes and no, right? No to these things. They don't necessarily even have to be bad. There's no to them right now. There's no place for them in my life right now. No to this and yes to this. He says, so you endure hardship uh, as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? Uh, if you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline. I like that. He just throws that in there. If you're not disciplined, and by the way, everyone is disciplined. Every child of God is then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. So he's making the point, he says, if you're not having hardship in your life, that doesn't mean that every day is hard and terrible. It's just as a general rule, if you're not experiencing hardship, difficult decisions, difficult just processes, difficulties, you know, I probably shouldn't say it. It's not cynical. I don't think it's cynical. It's just something that you're, you know, we have our staff meetings. I just say, hey, if there's no drama, it's not church. I mean, that's just the truth. If there's no problems, then you're probably not actually helping people, right? Because we have problems. We're broken, and we don't know how to fix ourselves. We get stuck, and we know all this. Stuff. So problems are fine. It's just fine. But if we're finding, like, wow, I just don't have any discipline in my life at all, Paul's just making a point. There may, there may be a problem there. What is God calling you to do in your life? What is it that he's narrowing you into to be a part of? He's going to go on. He's going to talk about earthly fathers that we'll skip because we don't have time for it. Verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. 
Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So he makes a very excellent statement. We have to grab onto this absolutely obvious idea. Discipline is never fun. He says no discipline, and when it starts, when it's happening, it never seems great. You never think like, yes, I want more of this. He goes, but, but, to people that are trained by it. Notice he puts a caveat. He puts, a, he puts an if. He puts a, uh, a condition. He says there's a peaceable fruit of righteousness to, to who? To everyone who's disciplined? No. To those who are trained by it. So the implication is to people that have responded to the discipline in their life in a godly manner. Right? Because what was the, what's the biggest issue? I've never gone through and counted it. But I think it's probably the, the, the biggest uh, description of Israel in the Old Testament is probably, I'm just going to go out on a limb. You, if I'm wrong, you can email me. Stiff-necked. How many, I don't know, countless times in the Old Testament, what is Israel stiff-necked? The idea that they will not bow. They will not bow their heads to God. And so we see over and over again, God disciplines them. He loves them. He cares of them. I mean, honestly, Deuteronomy, the theme is really obedience. But what you see in Deuteronomy is that God is so patient and he loves his people so much that he's constantly drawing him to himself. Even though, and this might hurt, there is not a time in history where Israel was ever, as a nation, faithful. Not a day. And yet God loved them, worked with them, cared for them. It's incredible. But they were stiff-necked. And so the stiff-necked person, the person who's unwilling to bow, is the, the person that, that does not get the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Because God is disciplining that person, and they're saying, no, I'll do what I want. I'll watch what I want. I'll say what I want. I'll have the relationships that I want. I'll do what I want to do. And God's saying, man, I'm trying to bring something good into your life. When we're saying, nope, what I want is good, and it's better, it's, it all goes back to Eden, right? You shall be as gods, knowing good from evil. And so we, we wrestle with that. And so discipline is to bring us from a place of original sin, not to sound melodramatic or something, but to a place where we acknowledge, no, actually God knows better. He knows better than I do. That's what, that's what discipline does in life. So this, this guy, he experienced that. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he experienced that. We don't know exactly what he did, but it was substantial enough to trouble everyone. And so as a group, they decided we're going to put an end to this, and they disciplined him. So that's what discipline is. Now the second part, though, he says, now instead, so there's a change in him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and to comfort him. Now this is for the, for the offender. We've talked about that. Now this is for the offendee, the people that, that he grieved. And this may be even harder than being the offender, to be honest. He says, now you're supposed to forgive and you're supposed to comfort. Now, this is why I want to pause and talk about forgiveness because there's a lot of like kind of wild, not wild, but just it's a wide spectrum of what forgiveness is. And I think some of that is from looking at the Bible and, and trying to interpret what it means and what it says because we have a lot of imagery when it comes to forgiveness in the Old Testament, right? We have, the, like, for example, he's put our sins as far as the east is from the west, Right? So that, and if you look at that, you go, well, okay, if you look at a globe, you could go east your entire life and you'll never go west, right? So that the idea, if you go north, eventually you'll go south. But if you're going east, you can never go west. So the idea there is not like we're running east and our sins are chasing us, because that would be weird, right? We don't take that as like some sort of literal thing. The idea is that they never find you. That when, once God takes care of your sin, forgives you of your sin by faith through the blood of Christ, that your sin can never find you again. Then we have like that he's cast our sin into the sea. There's no box somewhere in the bottom of the ocean, I promise you, that's full of sin. And he chucked it in there or something like that. You know, the idea is right, the, the ocean, if you throw something in the ocean, well, I mean, now we have a lot of technology, but if you're floating around on an open boat back in the day and, and you know, with a sail and some paddles and you throw a piece of metal into the ocean, into the Mediterranean Sea, are you going to find it again? No, it's gone forever, right? So the imagery there, again is that not that there's something magic about the ocean, it's the fact that the, it, the, the sin went to a place where it's irrecoverable. 
And we also have from Jeremiah where he says part of the, the covenant, the new covenant that he'll establish with Israel and with the world is he says, their iniquities and their sins I'll remember no more. Now, this is, this is pretty um, revolutionary to the Jew because there's no sacrifice in the, in the Jewish law for iniquity. So, in other words, there were sacrifices. If you stole out of hunger, you had to replace what you did. There were transgressions meaning you went where you should not have gone. You did something you shouldn't have done. But there was, no, there was no sacrifice. In fact, he says there's no sacrifice for iniquity, meaning that the, the high-handed sin, the sin that says, I will not do this, the, the, sin, the sin of rebellion, there, there, you couldn't like rebel and then bring a cow and be like, all right, we're cool, God. right? And there, there's more to be said about that because it really points to the fact that righteousness has always been by faith. Even when it was animal sacrifice, it was still by faith in God. But I digress. <clears throat> so we have all this imagery about how sin is, works and how sin is forgotten by God. Then we have things in the New Testament where we're told that, you know, Peter, he gets really brave and he says, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times, which the rabbis of the day mostly taught three. Three times. That, that you forgive someone three times for, for sin um, and then after that, you kind of cut them out of your life. Now our society is like one time, and then you publicly malign them on social media. So the Jews evidently were doing better than us. Uh, because, so they said three times. And, and so Peter, when he says to Jesus, how many times shall I forgive my brother? Seven times? That was like, <laughs> Who's, who loves people now? All right? He's thinking like, I'm pretty darn generous. Well, I can't tell what he was thinking, but seven, you know, He's going above and beyond what the religious leaders would have said. And Jesus says, no, it's 7 times 70. So the magic number is 490. Once somebody sins 490 times, you're out. Right? Obviously, it's imagery again, right? Because could you really, I guess you, if, if you could count to 490, like have a, a journal, you got big problems. But so, you know, the point is that it's just so many times it's uncountable. So how do I forgive somebody so many times? Can you imagine if someone sinned against you 490 times? You're like, yeah, I'm married. Of course I can. You know, it's like, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, that's a lot of times, right? That's a lot to be like, uh, it's cool again, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, that's a lot of times. So what is forgiveness then? Is forgiveness, because people will say things like, well, if you're going to forgive, you have to forget. How do you make yourself forget something? Can you make yourself forget something? I can't. Either you remember it or you don't remember it. Right? So to, to try to say that forgiveness is forgetting, well, that's not even logical. It would be, I think most of us who do struggle and want to forgive people would love it if that was how it worked. If you just went, Lord, I forgive that person, and you just forgot forever. That would make life so much easier, wouldn't it? But the problem is we remember, Right? And what about when somebody sins against you in a way that's very destructive, and if you were to stay in a position of interaction, it will cost you dearly or your kids or loved ones? Are we really saying that forgiveness means that you stay and tolerate anything that someone hands out? That doesn't make sense. You know, if, you have a, if you have a relationship that's, that's destroying your children, and you say, well, I just keep forgiving this lady or this guy. I just, I just forgive them. But your children are being destroyed? Is that really the righteous path? Is that really what, what, what God has called you to? That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. So what is forgiveness? Because we are called, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, we are called to forgive as God has forgiven us. But we know he hasn't forgotten our sin. So the word forgiveness, right? The word forgiveness, it, it's, it's uh, based on the word charis, which is grace, right? And it's charismazo, basically. And what it means is to give freely, or to give graciously. That's what forgiveness means. So when we forgive someone, forgiving is not forgetting. Now, that is to say, you know, you'll hear people say, like, well, I buried the hatchet, but I remember where I buried it. That's not forgiveness either, right? It's, it's not. But it's because now you're what you're saying is, I'm not going to deal with this, but if another bad thing happens, I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to bring it all back up again. So if, if God has forgiven us in Christ, 
And our sins are as far as the east is from the west. They've been chucked into the sea. And in the new covenant, he says, I'll remember them no more. As if his, in his omniscience, he was like, oh, really? You did that once? That's weird. I didn't, I didn't even, no, that's not what he's saying. It's the same, it's the same imagery that, that he doesn't apply them to us, right? That he's forgotten our sins. It's not the, the omniscient God of the universe. It slipped his mind or he has, you know, it somehow doesn't work. No, it's the idea that they're not counted against us. So when we forgive, when we show grace, when we give freely, right? It can be translated give freely. When we do that in someone's life, what it means is that we look at them and we apply to them grace, charis. Okay, that, that we, we, doesn't mean we become unwise. It doesn't mean that we perpetually allow ourselves to be abused. It means that we look at them the way God looks at them. Now, I don't, not to be cheesy or something like that, but if we look back just a couple chapters in the first letter that Paul wrote to Corinth in, in, in chapter 13. Now, we know that chapter 13 is it's actually a very appropriate context, right? Because it's smashed between the two gifts of the Spirit chapters. So when I, I understand that 1 Corinthians 13 is fun at weddings and so forth. I'm not minimizing that. I get it. But contextually, what it's, the point that it's making is that when in their, in their church, in all churches, anything that we do, including spiritual giftings, is to be done in a way where it's by love, right? Not drawing attention to ourselves, not trying to be something for us. That's the point. If you're going to speak in a tongue in public, it's not for you. It's so that someone else can interpret and other people can be blessed, right? And Paul illustrates that idea of love by saying, I would rather speak five words with my mind than 10,000 in an unknown tongue in a public venue. So, that's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 13. But in that context of loving others, this is where forgiveness lies. This is how forgiveness works. Because, see, forgiveness, showing grace, giving freely, forgiveness is more often, really what it boils down to is this. It's a process, number one. It's very rare. Sometimes it happens. But in my experience, it's rare that you just forgive. I mean, you know, someone takes your parking space or spills coffee on your shoe. I mean, you be like, I don't sweat it. But when someone deeply wounds you, when somebody does something to you or somebody you love that, costs, that causes anguish for, for a long time, it's not so easy, is it? And so what forgiveness boils down to is a battle of the mind and a battle of emotion. And what I mean by that is that when we forgive someone, we're not forgetting what they did. We're not throwing out wisdom of how our interaction should be with them. But what we're doing is we're looking at them with love and with grace, and we're saying, I want the best like God wants the best for them. That doesn't mean I condone what they've done to me or someone else. It doesn't mean I embrace it. It doesn't mean that I think it's okay. It doesn't mean that God thinks it's okay. It has no, the two are mutually exclusive. What it is is to say, I will not treat them poorly, and I will not treat them according to their sins as far as my outlook for them, my desire for them. So when we look at love, this reflects what forgiveness looks like on the inside from our own hearts, the offendee's heart. Love is patient, verse 4. Forgiveness is patience. right? It's, it's being able to endure in a difficult situation. So when we love someone, as God has called us to love all, and we forgive them, we come and we say, you know what, Lord? Even hearing this person's voice makes me want to scream. Right? You ever had that kind of wounding in your life? Where you're like, I don't want to hear you talk again. It hurts too much, or it causes too much anger in me, or what, I, what you did, I don't want to hear it again. Love is patient. So you take that thought, and you go, that's not how the Lord looks at that person. Right? He's not, worth, he's not, he's not willing that any should perish. So when I, when I have that, because do, don't we as human beings have those kind of extreme ideas? If we're being honest... Where we think to ourselves, I could almost kill you for what you've done. I'll never forgive you. I'll never listen to you. I'll never have any part with you again, right? That's, that's kind of a satanic view. But when we have a battle in our mind, when that comes up, it goes, don't even talk. We say, you know what, Lord? That's not you. That's not from you. You love this person. You want them to repent from what they've done. You want them to turn to you. They have growth. All those things are true, but you want the best for this person. So I can be patient right now. Lord, I'm not being patient right now. I'm anxious. 
I'm full of rage. I don't want to forgive this person. Lord, I confess that to you for the sin that it is. Help me to be patient. Help me to endure with this person because you want the best for them. And so in every interaction I have with this person that I feel it difficult to forgive, I want to keep that in my mind and say, no, 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 no. I'm not going to let my mind run away like that. I'm not going to entertain those thoughts. Love is kind. This is, I'll be honest, this is a fake it till you make it zone. It really is. Because a lot of times when, you don't, when it's hard to forgive someone, you don't want to be kind. In fact, there's a really interesting thing that happens when we've been wronged. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. When we've been deeply wronged, or even sometimes not so deeply, it can lead to something when we don't process it in a godly way, in a way that's biblical, entitlement. And what happens is we say, well, this happened to me, so you know what? I deserve this. I was treated poorly by this section of people, so you know what? I'm going to treat that section of people however I want. You know, it's funny how we can, uh, you can, you can be wronged in a marriage. You know, wrong, and you go, yeah, I'm wrong. okay, okay, you're going to treat me like that? Well, guess what? Guess who's getting a new iWatch, or whatever they're called, Apple Watch, <laughs> on the card. Because if you treat me that way, I get what I want. You ever thought that way? You're going to do that to me? Fine, I'm going to go do this. And we're twisted, man. It can go to some really weird, dark places. You cheat on me? I'm going to go hook up with five. I'm going to do what I want. You do that to me, I'm going to do what I want too. It's bizarre how bitterness and unforgiveness will lead to entitlement. And the funny thing is, when we, when we walk in in that kind of entitlement, who does it hurt? Us, right? Because typically if that person is wrong, they're so bad, they don't care. <laughs> You're like, yeah, whatever, do your thing. It harms us. So we forgive, part of it is because it will it'll benefit us. It's, love is kind. We don't respond with entitlement. You said that to me, watch this. Watch what I can say. Right? And, then, and then that entitlement leads to the famous saying, and another thing. Right? That doesn't really help in a relationship when you're trying to work things out. Yeah, you know what? You said that to me, and you know what the other day? You put my towel on the floor. Who do you think you are? Who does the laundry in this house? I put the towels where I want. You know, you know, this is so weird how it, it just degrades. So this is a time where I say, you know what? I want to respond in an unkind way because I feel I'm entitled because this person's wronged me, but I'm going to repent from that. I'm going to turn. I'm in, the, that, in that moment, I'm going to turn in my mind from that. That's where peaceable fruit of righteousness comes in. That's where God's fruit enters our souls, and there's peace, and there's rightness between us and God, and then rightness between us and the other person. What else is love like if it doesn't envy? We can envy those sometimes, in a twisted way, we can envy those that wrong us. Have you ever thought to yourself, man, I wish I could get away with that. My conscience would just kill me. Yeah. Love doesn't envy. Because when people lash out, when they do harmful things, they harm themselves too. And that's not just some weird thing that our fourth grade teachers told us. It's actually true. People that lash out, you know, maybe you've seen the sayings. I saw it on a church wall one time and in a kid's ministry. It just said, the, the kids that need the most help show it in the worst ways. And I thought, I don't know if I'd put that up in our kids' ministry, maybe in like a break room or something, but, you know, that's, it's so true. People that are hurting the most, they act the, most, the, the worst because they're just lashing out. They don't know how to deal with pain. They don't know how to deal with what's happened to them, legitimately happened to them. Ways that they've been victimized, and so they, they lash out. The entitlement kicks in, all those things. So love is, love is different. It's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't do it. It stops. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. When you're loving someone, you don't, you don't boast about how good you are. Oh, you did that? Well, I've never done that. I can't believe you did that to me, because I would never do that to you. That's not true, even. There go we, save for the grace of God. Right? So it, love doesn't boast. It's, it's, it doesn't dishonor others. When we forgive someone, we love them. Dishonor is the idea of, I don't give you value. I don't assign value to you, right? If you honor someone, if you have honor for them, then you, there's deference there. There's appreciation. There's a, so love, when we love a person, when we want to forgive a person, as soon as we want to devalue them in our minds, as soon as we want to look at them and go, well, you're a garbage person because of this, we have to stop in our tracks and go, no. You know what? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm a garbage person too because of this, but I'm not garbage because of Christ, right? 
He said, I have great value. He said, this person has great value. To devalue another human being because of their works or what they've done, they're still intrinsically valuable as a human being. They're still desired by God to repent until the day that he takes them. And then, that, and then after that, it's for him to decide. Far be it from us to ever want to decide another human being's judgment. That is a scary idea to think that I could logically and emotionally work through what another person deserves. <laughs> Just knowing my own baggage. I don't know if there's any more pinnacle pompousness than that. I'm not talking about being a judge over the law. I'm talking about trying to measure eternal judgment of, of what somebody deserves. What else is it like? <clears throat> well, it says here, it uh, doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. Right? So when I'm, when I'm expressing forgiveness for someone, I'm not seeking to bolster myself. Now, is there peace and joy in forgiveness? A hundred percent there is. But really, when I look at another person, one of the reasons I want this love of God given to me by the Holy Spirit to, to why I yield to it, to flow out of me, is because my goal, our goal as Christians, is to see other people come into the kingdom, to see other people get saved. So there's a motivation here that goes, it's eternal, that goes far beyond just getting over on someone or just making sure they get what they deserve or whatever. Again, not talking about criminal justice, talking about oppression, you know, us trying to stick it to people. So he says, he goes on from there, it is not easily angered. That's pretty self-explanatory. When I'm getting easily angered, I have to repent from that. It keeps no record of wrongs. Now you go, oh, see, I knew it. The idea is not that, it's, it's, again, you can't make yourself forget something, right? The idea here, it keeps no record of wrongs. It means that you don't make an effort and you don't use a list to try to wrong people, to try to judge them or measure them or bring it up again, right? It means that, that when wrong does happen, that we're not constantly reminding someone else about it. Now, if, you know, and this, this is one of the things, like, here's, here's a little, just a tidbit for marriage, for any relationship, really, but especially in marriage. Um, if some sort of wrong occurs in the marriage, you know, anything from just some snide comment to adultery or something, but if something wrong occurs in the marriage, if you want your marriage to, to succeed, you need to address the wrongs, right? We, we all agree with that? This is important. You need to address the wrongs. And I'll be honest, for dudes, that's really hard because we have these gigantic heads, I don't know, you have to see them duck come through the door, right? We have these big heads. We don't like being told we're wrong. Let's just be honest, dudes. We don't like being told we're wrong. We don't want to hear it. And as far as we're concerned, we're super smart, and we don't do wrong very often, so we don't even know why we talk about it, right? And there's, there's, even, a, <laughs> there's even a there's a prescription that I don't think very many women like in the, in the Scripture, but in Peter, women are told to win their husbands without a word. And, and that's, that's not because you don't have anything to say of value as a woman. It's because your man won't listen to you because his head is too big. And so men are not won by, by lectures. They're not won by, by uh, this list of wrongs. That isn't to say there's not a time to say, hey, you treated me this way, and that was, it, it made me feel terrible. That was wrong. Why would, I wish you wouldn't say that to me. Nobody's saying you don't work through things. But there's a way to do it. And a list of wrongs is not the way. If you want to win your husband to the faith, if you want to win your husband to, to you, it's not going to come through telling him everything he did wrong. Because we're broken. All right? I'm not justifying it. I'm not saying it should be that way. I'm saying that the Bible says you're not going to be able to talk your dude into something. Instead, from that point of view, there's the love and the cherishing. If you want to win your husband to the faith or to a point of view where he's not being rude or angry or not responding to you in a poor way, it's going to come through showing him love and lovingly discussing things. It's not going to come through lists. It's not going to come through any of that. And I think in the same way for women, although women oftentimes are willing to respond more uh, than men are, um, but that, that love and that care for one another not lists of wrongs. Lists of wrongs have solved nothing. Discussing and loving and caring and being honest, that's what solves things. And, and since we're just on this weird journey right now into marriage, you know, one of the two, two things, maybe this is for someone or maybe I just don't know what the Holy Spirit is, but two things. 
You know, one of the things that, that worked for my wife and I quite a bit, this is some, some counsel we got years and years and years ago, is don't ever say divorce. Don't ever say it. So for us, and you can take this or leave this, we don't joke about it. We've never made a joke. Oh, if you did that, I'd leave you. Because the relationship is so sacred, it's, and it can be so delicate, you just don't screw around with that. So I encourage you, do not joke around with divorce. If you do, God bless you. There's no, you can't turn to like, you know, second hesitation that says, thou shalt not joke about divorce. I'm just saying, as you're, as just somebody who sat with a lot of marriages that were destroyed, don't, don't joke about it. It's not funny. It's, it's one of the worst things in the world. And, and secondly, secondly, I would say this, and this is really for, for the men. Listen to your wife. Listen to her. First Peter says that we should dwell with our wives according to understanding. Which, and then what that means is that we should learn about them, we should respect them, learn about them, and respond to them in ways that's going to be helpful. That's what men are to do in marriage. And it's really important. Yes, you're, you're taxed, or tasked, I should say, with the idea of being a spiritual leader. Yes, you're there to be a protector and all those things, 100%. But you're there to be someone to cherish. It's in the end of the day, Paul ends his whole section on marriage in Ephesians 5 by saying a husband must see to it that he cherishes his wife, loves his wife, and a wife must see to it that she respects her husband. And this, those are the words. They're not the same word. Love and respect are not the same word. And it has to do with how you can best reach your spouse. So I just encourage you, dudes, be willing to talk. In my own ugly pride, I've had to just shut my mouth because what my wife is saying is very valid, even when I don't want to, which is disgusting. I mean, that's twisted, but it's the truth. If you're a dude, listen to your wife. And if you're a wife, don't disrespect your husband. If you disrespect him, don't expect him to pay attention to you. And if you don't cherish your wife, don't expect her to pay attention to you. It's just how people work in general. So maybe that was for someone. Maybe I'm blowing smoke, but let's finish this up. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So we know what discipline looks like. We know what forgiveness looks like. And then he says to comfort someone. He says there in chapter 2 and in verse 7 to finish it, he says, Forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed with excess, by excessive sorrow. And you can see from the list that we read in chapter 13 about love that, you know what, it, it's, it's, for us, it's a humbling, right? Because we might want to think, you know how much grief you call the church? You should have ex- excessive sorrow. But there again, what is our goal? Every time we open our mouth with someone, what is our goal? Is our goal to exert dominance and let them know that we're in control is our, is our goal to make them know they can't hurt us? Is our goal to make them know that we're superior? Is our goal to make them... What is our goal? Or is it our goal to make them know in some way, whether it's just by example or as a shadow, to let them know that God is great and his kingdom is fantastic and we just want to be there to help them to find goodness, to find peace, to find joy, that that's what we're about. Is that what our goal is? And that doesn't mean we don't address sin or anything. We do address sin, but we do it in a way to be helpers of people's joy. And then uh, lastly, uh, he says there uh, in uh, verse 9, he says, Another reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. And that's, he's not being petty. It's not like oh, I was just, he, he says, I wanted to write to you because I wanted to see his, his hope, right? Because he says, I knew I was expectant that you would partake in my joy, right? He said that up here. So when he says, I want to see if you obey, it's not like he's being petty, like, I thought you guys were a bunch of losers, and I just want to verify that. No, what he's saying is, I also wrote, he wanted to give them the truth, he wanted them to hear the truth, and he hoped that they would listen to the truth, but he wrote to see if they actually would do that. Because if they didn't do that, it's not so that he could mock them, right? He's, he's explained all the way up to this point. If they're not going to do it, what would be the purpose? So he could go back and help them, right? So it's, again, it's, it's from a position of love and not from being right. And then he goes, he says, look, anyone that you forgive, I forgive. He says, if you say it's good in your church with that guy, then it's good with me. And he says, I do that according to Christ. So he's saying it's before the Lord that I do that. And then lastly, he gives one last reason. He says, he says that he's forgiven and he's for, and, 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 uh, 
Verse 11, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not aware, we are not unaware of his schemes. So he uses that Greek double negative. But he makes a point. He says, you know what? If we're not forgiving people and then comforting them after they've wronged us, we open the door for Satan to work. That's what he says. And that's just the truth. And it's a wild thought to think that you can be a Christian, that you can be full of the Holy Spirit, that you can go to a church on a regular basis, but that you can have something in yourself, a, a, a spiritual cancer, as it were, that you can actually spread to everyone around you, that you can actually be all those things and you can cause death to people around you, not physical death, although that too, I suppose, but, but, but emotional, spiritual, right? Psychological death by someone who doesn't forgive, by someone who, who holds on and, and makes sure that, you make, that people know that they wronged you and do all those things. And so I don't think that's not what we want to do here, right? I think we're like, hey, we think Jesus' kingdom is pretty great, and so we'd like other people to know that. So Paul just lays out this deal for us, like this is how it worked in Corinth. This is how discipline works in the church. It's how discipline works in our life. It's how we can interpret hardship in our lives and, and let, it, let it squeeze us and let it move us and mold us to, to Christ. And that ultimately that forgiveness is, is something that needs to be immediate and in a sense, it needs to be vehement. It's a battle that needs to be won. It's a battle that needs to be addressed at the, at the basis of thought before it even, unforgiveness makes it out of our mouth, right? And that, that battle for our, uh, in our minds, it will change our souls. It will cleanse us and it will breed life around us. So great things are afoot for every believer. I encourage you to, to let things go. And if you want to pray afterwards about unforgiveness or anything at all, we'd love to pray with you because God has great things for you. Father, thank you for your grace and your kindness and the opportunity today to look into your word. I pray that we would be a forgiving people, a loving people. I pray, Lord, that we would be a wise people that are able to navigate hurtful and difficult situations to not just subject ourselves to damage, uh, but that we would be those that are able to Look at um, people that have deeply wronged us and say, you want the best for them. And I pray that that would be the battle in our minds, that we would love, we care. Pray for our marriages. Uh, Lord, it seems that those we are most familiar with, we sin against the most. And I pray, Lord, that we would be quick to humble ourselves, that we would be quick to uh, love and to cherish, quick to respect um, quick to lift up one another in our marriages. And that our children would see that. And they would have a good understanding of what a good husband and dad does and a good understanding of what a good mom uh, and uh, wife does. And that we would pass on to the next generation godly values. So thanks for being so patient with us. We appreciate it. And we appreciate your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.